The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. This morning, uh, I want to go to the third chapter of the book of Mark. And I want to ask a question that, that is a very probing question, a very um, uh, deep question if we really think about it. Is your God in a box? Is your God in a box? That is, do you have preconceived notions, maybe based upon teachings that you've learned out in the world? Maybe it's teachings you were brought up with. Do you have preconceived notions about God? The Pharisees in Jesus' day had a fixed idea of who God was and what His work involved and what it absolutely could not, in be, could not be involved in it. They had been taught certain doctrines and certain traditions from a child on up, and, and ultimately they felt threatened by anybody or anything that fell outside that box in which they had placed God. But there's a famous quote, one of my favorite non biblical books uh, of all time or series of all time are the Chronicles of Narnia written by a man named C.S. Lewis who was a great Christian theologian and apologist and and don't get me wrong C.S. Lewis's writings are not scripture but they're good writings and teach us a lot of good scriptural lessons but in that book there's a there's a famous series of quotes referencing Aslan the Lion, who, as I said, is the figure C.S. Lewis uses in a fictional way to represent Christ. And this is what he says about Aslan the Lion, who, who fictionally represents Christ. He is not a tame lion. Now that's used over and over throughout this series, this seven-book series. Aslan is not a tame lion. In other words, you can't fit him neatly into your fixed opinions. This lion in that series who represents Christ cannot be placed in a box unless that box comports with Scripture. If the box that you have God in does not comport with Scripture, doctrinally or otherwise, then your world may be upended like the Pharisees when you have an encounter with Christ. So this morning as we deal with the question, is your God in a box, let's let's look at the third chapter of Mark and let's sort of recap to some extent where we have been. We have been through the first and second chapters. The first chapter of Mark introduces us to Jesus Christ. The first chapter of Mark uh, starts out with that wonderful statement, uh, uh, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, reminding us that it is good news that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Praise God, He is the Son of God. Because if He weren't, all of this that we're doing today would be nothing more than foolishness. John introduced Him. He he began to tell us in in that day a little bit about Him and about who He was, about Him being the voice in the wilderness. And, and then Jesus came on the scene and introduced his own ministry by saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. It is here, and it is near. It is with us, it is with you today. You know why it was here? You know why it was at hand? It's because Jesus Christ was at hand. 
You know, Jesus Christ, if you will, is the mobile kingdom of God. <laughs> Wherever he is, the kingdom of God is. And he said, because I'm the son of God and because the kingdom of God is here, repent ye and believe the gospel. What's the gospel? The good news. The good news is what? That Jesus Christ is the son of God. And we're going to see what he'll do when he's here. We're going to see what he is here for as we continue through the book of Mark, and you can read it in all the Gospels, but the bottom line is he didn't come here to, to be a, a traveling sideshow. He, he performed a lot of miracles. We're going to see. He began to start performing miracles, healing people, casting out demons, and people were going to say things about him such as, we've never seen it on this fashion before. They were amazed at him. They were surprised at what they saw, excited about it, so much so that they thronged him. But when it comes down to it, Jesus Christ wasn't here to be a traveling sideshow working miracles and healing people. All of those things were simply done to point us to the fact that, hey, he is the Son of God. What he's saying is, I am the Son of God. You remember the first miracle, or one of the first miracles he performed when they tore down the house. They tore the roof off to get their friend down there. And the first thing he said to this man that was sick of the palsy was not, oh, rise, take up your bed and walk. He says that later, but he says, son, thy sins be forgiven thee. He was pointing those Pharisees to the fact that he was not here for the reason they thought he was here. He wasn't going to fit neatly into their box. And the progression of his ministry as we see it beginning in the third chapter of the book of Mark, we have just concluded a time when, when Jesus has kind of upended the Pharisaical um, uh, traditions about the uh, about the law, uh, you know. Hey, they said your disciples aren't fasting, but the Pharisees fast. They say that uh, your disciples are plucking ears of corn on the Sabbath day. Why are they doing that, which is not lawful? And you remember that the Pharisees had come up with a whole system of traditions. God had not spoken in a. Uh, in, in an inspired way. God had not spoken to his people in over 400 years. Since the book of Malachi, since the prophet Malachi had left the scene, uh, God had not sent an inspired vision uh, to, to this earth. And so the Pharisees, uh, uh, as men tend to do, they began to make up traditions of their own and began to teach those traditions as doctrines. And they said, you're not fasting and you're eating on the Sabbath day. What's, what's up with this? And Jesus began to upend their little world. Remember, they had God in a box. They had put God in their own little box, in their own little uh, uh, circumscribed area of this is how God is, this is what he does, this is what we should believe and do with him. Jesus said, God's not what you think he is. Listen, the law wasn't given just to be giving a law. The law was given... For man, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And on the heels of that, in verse, in chapter 3, rather, of Mark, we see the progression of his ministry. Notice, notice that he, he continued to teach. Remember that the focus of his ministry was a message. It wasn't an action. It was, now, don't get me wrong. Ultimately, the act of going to the cross and dying for the sins of his people is why he was here. But his ministry and the message, the ministry that he came to bring was a message. And that is good news, the kingdom of God is here. Notice in verse 1, he entered again into the synagogue. 
And there was a man there which had a withered hand. Now, let me stop you right there. Notice he continued to teach. He entered again into the synagogue. Luke chapter 4 and verse 16 says, As his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. It was his custom, and I just want to say to you, beloved, it ought to be our custom if it was Jesus' custom. Going to church is not optional. Going to church should not be just another thing that we check off our to-do list. Going to church and worshiping God ought to be foremost on our list. It ought to be the priority of our lives. Uh, and, and, and we ought to be excited about the fact. I'll tell you, beloved, hopefully... Lord willing, next Sunday morning, we'll be back in our church building. We'll be back together in person. And I cannot wait to get back there and to see all your precious faces and to be with you all and to be able to see you again. I, I don't know all this social distancing that we're going to have to continue to do. I understand that. But I can't wait one day to where we can be back together and we can hug one another's necks and we can shake one another's hands. Praise God, it's coming. I believe the Lord is going to bless us to get back there. But here's my point, that the, the church of God should not be optional. It is something that we ought to make a priority. It was Jesus' habit. It was his custom to be there. And in that church, what was he doing? He wasn't there just showing off his new clothes. He wasn't there showing off a new hat or a new tie or something like that. He was there to teach and to hear the word preached. And his message, as I've said, is that the kingdom of God is at hand. Remember remember what happened in chapter 2? You remember when he was walking by the, the place where they... They were receiving tax, uh, taxes were being collected. You remember that? I, I can just see Peter and John, John and, uh, or Peter and James, uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John as they walked by there saying, boy, I'll be glad to get out of here because those guys are traitors. You remember the story. We're not going to rehash it here. You can go back and look at our message from last week. But bottom line is tax collectors were hated in that day and they were mostly corrupt. I'll, I'll say this. They were mostly corrupt. But in that day, okay, uh, as he was walking by, there was a man named Levi sitting at the receipt of custom, and, and he called him. And, and, and they couldn't believe it. I'm sure it, it was a shocking thing. It would have been a shocking thing in that day for him to call a tax collector into his service. But he did that, showing us that the kingdom of God transcends all boundaries. We've already seen where he transcended all traditions, the fasting of the Pharisees was not something he, that was taught in the law. It's mentioned from time to time in the Old Testament, but it wasn't taught in a sense of thou shalt, thou shalt fast. Uh, but, but they had began to teach it as a, as a doctrine, a, 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 a tradition that was taught as a doctrine. Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of God, transcends all traditions. And then, uh, then they began to eat on the Sabbath day. And he, he said, listen, the Sabbath is for man and not man for the Sabbath. He says, listen, the kingdom of God transcends all interpretations that men have of the law. He continued to teach this. And then he continued to heal. Verses 2 down through verse 12, actually. Uh, you remember his prior miracles, the unclean spirit, Simon's mother-in-law, the multitude of deceased and possessed, and the leper and the paralytic. We've talked about them already. But here in, in verse 2, it says, They watched him, whether he would heal him. You remember the, there was a man with a withered hand there in the synagogue. They watched him, they, they being the Pharisees and religious leaders, they watched him whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day 
that they might accuse him. I want you to remember our question from the beginning of this service. Is your God in a box? Their God was in a box. Their God was in a particular place circumscribed by their traditions and their doctrines and the teachings they had grown up with. They could not see uh, anything outside that box and they weren't there to learn from the Lord Jesus Christ. What they were there for was to catch him in something that he shouldn't be doing. They were there that they might accuse him. And so Jesus, as he tended to do, thwarted all of that. And he said unto the man which had the withered hand, Stand forth, and he saith unto them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days, or to do evil, to save life, or to kill? And of course, they held their peace. <laughs> Jesus here asks a probing question that is really more illuminating of them than of him. There, he's looking around them, and he knows what's in their mind. We're going to see that in the next verse. He knows what they're thinking. And he says to them, uh, okay, you tell, me a, you tell me an answer to a question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day, to do good on the Sabbath day, or should we do evil? Or should we save life? Should we kill it? What does the letter of the law say about that? Well, see, that's what they were looking to was the letter and not the spirit of the law. Now, I want you to understand, Jesus was not abrogating the law here. Jesus was not changing the law. Jesus was not up, uh, upending the law. He was upending their understanding of the law. He was, he was changing their interpretation of the law. They had God circumscribed in a little box, and I'll tell you, their God was not very big. You know, a few weeks ago, we ended a series about the life of Joseph asking the question, how big is your God? And we said then that God is big no matter what we think about him, but how we think about him will affect how we deal with him and how we deal with other people. And in this case, their God was so small, they could get him down into this box of their traditions and their teachings. And Jesus said, ask this question uh, more to probe them than to give them any information because they really weren't looking for information. And then in verse 5 it says, When he looked around about on them with anger. You don't think about Jesus getting angry, do you? But you know he does get angry. I'll tell you when he gets angry. He doesn't get angry. He never got angry when they afflicted him. He never got angry when they pulled his beard out, when they flogged him with that, that terrible whipping that he got, when they, when they scourged him, when they beat him, when they planted the crown of thorns and pushed it down on his brow, when they hung him on the cross. He didn't get angry then. Oh, but he gets angry when people take his word and pervert it to the oppression of, of his sweet little precious sheep. And that's what they've been doing. He looked around about, he said he looked about them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts. That word hardness there literally means to be covered with a callus or to be covered with thick skin. In other words, callousness. He was grieved. He was angry about that. He does not like it when, when anyone, especially his people, become callous uh, toward him or toward their fellow man or toward his law. And here he demonstrates the heart of the law instead of the traditions of men. You know, later on he'll tell them that loving their neighbor is the second greatest commandment, second only to loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and spirit. He said to him, stretch forth thine hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Notice their reaction in verse 6. 
instead of being amazed and excited and saying, wow, look what's happening here. Something is, something's going on. The Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Tells you a little bit about their heart. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ was grieved. Listen, Jesus is grieved at sin. God is not happy with sin. God hates sin. And he hates the sin that especially causes pain to others. And notice in verses 7 through 12, and we won't, we won't read all of this but, but uh, for the lack of time, but go read it. It said, Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and from beyond Jordan, and they about Tyre and Sidon, and a great multitude, when they had heard what great things he did, came unto him. And he got his disciples to get a ship because there were so many people, lest they should throng him. And he healed many of them, and he, he, he threw out unclean spirits, and he kept, he kept charging them that they should not make him known. <laughs> Those unclean spirits would come out of somebody and say, You're the Son of God. And he says, Shh, keep quiet. <laughs> now, <clears throat> that's going to be important in a minute, because... We're going to see how some people reacted, including his own kinsmen and friends and family. Um, and if you think about think about this, as we we're not there yet, and we'll come back to it in a minute. But um, if I were casting out a demon, if I had the power to cast out a demon, if I had the power to heal somebody, I'll be honest with you. I'd I'd be like I'd probably be. I hope I wouldn't, but I my my fleshly side would be. Wanting to tell everybody, I'd, I'd want to get on TV like some of these televangelists and start um, start showing off my power, and 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 I might even raise a little money over it, you know, and help my ministry forward, you know. I, I understand why these these big time TV evangelists, uh, uh, there. I mean, I understand uh, the desires of their heart to be important and to be known. I mean, you know why I understand it because I've got it in my heart. And you do too, by the way. Don't don't ever don't ever forget that when you cast stones out there, uh, you know, and you point a finger that way, you got three fingers pointing back. Okay, because we are absolutely as corrupt at heart as Adam ever was. In fact, we're Adam multiplied. So in our flesh, we have a desire to be elevated and to be made known. And and my inclination in my flesh, if I had the power to throw out demons, to cast demons out into and to uh, heal people, it would be to build myself a big ministry and buy myself a plane and, and start becoming some big-time well-known evangelists. <clears throat> but if we follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, notice, notice what he said. Every time he threw, cast out a demon, every time he did, he said, he said, he straightly charged them that they should not make him known. He wasn't out to make a name for himself. You know, there's a reason for that. <laughs> he, did, he already had the name that is above all names. He wasn't out to acquire power for himself, and there's a reason for that. He already had all power in heaven and earth. He wasn't out to build up his prestige or build up his, his ministry and that sort of thing because he already had the greatest ministry of all, which is the ministry of the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand. 
the kingdom of God that people thought was unattainable was up in heaven. And certainly there is a kingdom of heaven, a kingdom of God in heaven. But I'll tell you, beloved, the kingdom of God in Jesus' day was at hand. And by the way, I'll let you in on a little secret. It's been at hand ever since Jesus was here. It is here today. It is manifest invisibly in the person and work of the church, the true church of God. But Jesus was not trying to accumulate these things to himself and, and and as i said in a minute we're going to see that led his friends and family to think he was losing his mind <laughs> i almost entitled the message this morning when jesus lost his mind but i decided that probably wouldn't go over very well because uh it might mislead somebody into thinking that uh, uh that i really believe jesus lost his mind but listen I, didn't, I don't believe he lost his mind, but we're going to see in a minute. His friends and family thought he had gone crazy. As we continue looking at the progression of his ministry, notice that, that he then, in verse 13, verses 13 through 19, he began, he continued rather, to call disciples. He continued. Part of his ministry was always calling disciples to himself. And notice in verse 13, he goeth up into a mountain and calleth unto him whom he would. It wasn't whoever would, it was whom he would. And beloved, it's always been that way when it comes to the call into the ministry. And by the way, these 12, these that are, these that are called are going to be ordained. And that word ordained literally means in the Greek to do or to make. Jesus alone could make disciples. Nobody else can make a man a uh, an apostle, rather. Jesus alone could make apostles. Jesus alone can make a preacher. I can't make myself a preacher. I don't have the ability within myself to call myself. Many men have tried. Many men have, have been, a, 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 as they say, a local call instead of a long-distance call. But the true call of God is a long-distance call from heaven. Only the Lord Jesus Christ has the ability to call men, and he calls whom he would. You can make all kinds of excuses. I did. I made all kinds of excuses. I've heard of all kinds of excuses. I've heard men say, I can't speak plainly. Moses said that. I've heard men say, I can't think very clearly. I've heard men say, I don't have the education. My goodness. You know what I said? I said, I'm too fat to be a preacher. My goodness. Uh, I made all kinds of excuses. My brother told me when I told him that, he just laughed. He said, you know how many fat preachers there are? And I don't want to hear any comments from my from my, uh, from my members about that, okay? But anyway, there's all kinds of excuses men can make, but the Lord calls whom he would. And you can't make yourself and ordain yourself to be a called of God. But that's what he did. He called them whom he would, and they came unto him. And then we see he ordained 12 that they should be with him and that, they might, that he might send them forth to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out devils. <clears throat> now, I haven't read everything up to this point. I've skipped over some, uh, uh, assuming and hoping that you'll go back and read. I've tried to summarize to this point, but I'm going to read you the names of these men that are ordained and that are called by God. And I want you to listen closely to them, and I want you to remember something about them. Only one of them, only one of them ever died a natural death according to history and that was the apostle john and simon he surnamed peter and james the son of zebedee and john the brother of james he surnamed them boanerges which is the sons of thunder and andrew and philip and bartholomew and matthew and thomas 
and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, which also betrayed him. And they went into an house. Those men, those that were faithful, not Judas, but those that were faithful, all but John died a martyr's death later on. And all of them were brought from circumstances where you never would have thought they would ever be preachers of the gospel, to the grace of God. I know a lot of men like that across this nation that if you just looked at their qualifications and looked at their backgrounds, you'd say, man, there's no way. You'd say they've either been too bad in their lives, they've been too, um, they've been too uh, mean, or they've been, they've been cheats, they've been thieves, they've done all sorts. Hey, the Apostle Paul was complicit in murder. You say, no way he could be called into the ministry, but the Lord Jesus Christ calls whom he will. And, and as I've said already in this series on the book of Mark, none of these men are qualified. Levi, sitting at the receipt of customs, he was a traitor to the people. He was a thief. He was crooked. He was, he was absolutely unqualified to be in any way a servant to the Lord Jesus Christ. But you know what? God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. He calls whom He will, and He qualifies them, whether they've got a third grade education or they've got ten doctorates behind their name. It doesn't matter. I'll tell you, beloved, God calls whom He will. And those whom He calls, He qualifies. He gives, you know, a man who looks qualified usually isn't. The one who has the most degrees and the most education oftentimes is the worst. It's not not a uh, not ever be will never be called as a preacher. They sound good on paper. They maybe can write very well, but there's a difference in being a preacher who can preach with power and demonstration of the spirit and being somebody uh, who is able to write something that looks good. God called Levi a thief, a traitor, a compromiser. And it probably shocked the conscience of those that were around him. But I'll tell you, beloved, praise God, he calls whom he will. And now we get to the interesting part. We get to the part where they start criticizing his ministry. Oh, man, they've been criticizing already, but look at this. Verse 20 of Mark chapter 3. The multitude came together again so that they could not eat so much, could not so much as eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said he is beside himself. <laughs> Beloved, his and this word friends here also gives the connotation of kinsmen. So this was friends and family. This was folk from back home. This is folk that, that knew him well, and they said he is beside himself. They said he's gone crazy. This, this man that we grew up with has gone crazy. He has lost his mind. He wasn't acting in the way they thought he should be acting. He wasn't going where he ought to go. He wasn't doing what he ought to do. He wasn't visiting with whom he should. He wasn't even eating right. It says that where he was, they couldn't eat. There were so many people there and so much going on that, uh, that he couldn't even so much as eat bread. And they said, we've got to go get him and bring him home because he has lost his mind. You know, I want to tell you, beloved, oftentimes when the call of the Lord comes upon the life of a man, 
uh, especially a man who's called to preach, uh, or, or whatever he has called you to do, whatever his, his word and his spirit is leading you to do, your commitment to follow him can make your own family scratch their heads and wonder what in the world is wrong with you. <laughs> man, you could be somebody. Why are you forsaking all and going to preach in Africa? Why are you laying down something that you're doing <clears throat> that you would otherwise be a success at and you're, you're giving all that up because you've been called to preach the gospel? What about that person who has an opportunity for a promotion and, and all they've got to do is pick up their family and move to another part of the country? But in that part of the country, there's no good old Baptist church, good old truth-preaching church out there, and, and you can't find anything. You say, well, you know, it's all for my career. I've got to do what is ever necessary to advance my career. But, you know, when you say, no, I'm not going to do that, I'm going to stay where the kingdom of God is. I'm not going to leave the kingdom of God. I'm going to stay put. I'm going to stay here, even if it means taking a pay cut, even if it means losing my job, uh, whatever it takes, I'm going to be where the kingdom of God is because that's the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand and Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And because he is the Son of God, I need to be where the kingdom of God is. People think you're crazy. That's what his family thought. And they were going to go get him. They were going to go lay hold on him. They thought they were going there. They, they didn't go there to listen. And you know, on over a little bit further in verse 31, it says, There came then his brethren and his mother, and standing without, sent unto him, calling him. They were not there, beloved, to listen to him. I believe it's clear from the context here. They weren't there coming to say, Hey, I want to hear what he has to say because this sounds interesting to me. No, they thought that he had lost his mind and they were calling him saying, Son, do you know what you're doing? You're not even eating right. <laughs> and you know what happened there. The multitude was around him there and told him that. And he, he answered them this. He said, Who is my mother or my brethren? And he looked around about on them which sat about him and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of God, the same as my brother and my sister and my mother. Beloved, what he's telling them there is this. You may have to forsake family to follow to follow God. When you go to the, the kingdom of God, I've seen so many people who, who just stay out around the edges of the kingdom of God. They, they never come on in and join the church. They're just always kind of floating around the edge. And it's because, well, mama wouldn't be happy or daddy wouldn't be happy or brother, or I want my children. That's a big one right there. We've got to go where there's a good children's program where there's enough children uh, in order for them to have some, some friends and all that. Beloved, what did the Lord say about that? He said, ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Beloved, when seeking the kingdom of God, I'm talking about the church now, the visible aspect of the kingdom of God, we need to be looking for where the truth is preached and where, where the true way of worship is pursued and where the simplicity in Christ exists. And when we find that, it's like finding a treasure in a field. And we shouldn't be out there seeking in all the world, say, well, this is better for my children. I would join this church, but this is better for my children. Don't let your children, don't let your parents, don't let your husband or wife even prevent you from coming into the kingdom of God. 
Jesus said it doesn't matter about all these other folks. His mother became one of his greatest supporters. His brethren ultimately, were, many of them were supporting him and believers in him, but at this time they were not. And he said, that doesn't matter. These folks are my family. This is my mother and my sister and my brother, those that believe and those that, that follow. And then as you keep reading here, going back to verse 22, here's where we get to that point that I think the question I asked at the beginning of this service is particularly important. Is your God in a box? Is your God in a box? Notice what happened in verse 22. The scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub. And by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. The religious leaders in his day, those who knew the scriptures, believed that he had a devil. <clears throat> they couldn't argue with the results of his power, so they tried to discredit him in this way. Why did they do that? Why was it that they rejected him and tried to do that. It was because his methods and his results didn't fit neatly into the religious and cultural paradigm of the Pharisees. They couldn't see God working outside their little tight theological box. They had God in a box, and there was no room for a man with this kind of power, for a Messiah with a supernatural kingdom instead of a political kingdom. They had no room for someone uh, who says the kingdom of God has come near in the person and work of a man. Do you have your God in a box this morning? Do you have your preconceived notions, your preconceived teachings and traditions? Is that restricting us from knowing the truth about God? There's a lot of reasons that, that we can miss like the Pharisees did, when God is really working. It all goes back to fear. <clears throat> I believe the reasons for this rejection by the Pharisees was, was first of all, the fear of anything new. His, his ministry, Jesus' ministry, threatened their old way of worship. Uh, their old way of, tra their traditions that had been promoted for so many years, for hundreds of years, about four centuries, the traditions that had built up. Jesus' ministry threatened those traditions. We're going to see as we continue to go through the Gospels here that, uh, that Jesus had no regard for their traditions. In fact, he called them out on it so often that the traditions they taught for doctrines made of none effect the Word of God. Beloved, if your idea of God is contrary to God's word, then you and I need to be introduced to a new way of thinking about him. I'll give you a good example. Um, one of the things that sets apart the primitive Baptist church from most in the religious world, not all, but most, is, is our belief that the Bible teaches us in the, about the sovereignty of God and salvation. You know, most, most teachings in the world today tell us that, that the gospel puts on the center the burden of doing something with the gospel call. Now, I understand that there's a gospel call, 
there's a gospel call that we can reject or we can accept and put in and implement into our lives. But beloved, there's there's an effectual call that is of God alone. And before that gospel call can even have any, uh, it can be interesting at all to any child of God, there has to have been an effectual call, a calling uh, from above, as, it's, as we're taught in John the third chapter, uh, a new birth, because in our natural state, in our natural state, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. In our natural state, we're not interested in any of these things. But the world teaches us that in order to get born again, someone must accept the gospel call, or accept Jesus, or, or call upon him and pray a prayer, and that sort of thing. But beloved, I want to tell you, the only place that the word accept ever appears in relation to Jesus in this uh, in the scriptures that I read is over in the second in the in the uh, uh, second chapter of the uh, first chapter rather of the book of Ephesians where it says we are made accepted in the beloved. Your teachings led you to believe that you've got to do something in order to be saved. Does that comport with the scriptures, or does the scriptures tell us that Jesus? saved his people from their sins you know what about the doctrine of election what about the doc what about the word predestination so many times those words cause so much anxiety and so much so much distress and 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 and, and argumentation <laughs> there's so many arguments that occur over that beloved people get uptight about it beloved there's nothing to be uptight about with the doctrine of election, it says that Jesus chose his, that God rather chose his people in Christ before the foundation of the world. And I'll ask you this, when's the last time have you heard your preacher preach on that? If, if your pastor, your preacher's not preaching on that, uh, it's clearly taught in the word of God. We need, to, we need to rethink God. If God, if our vision of God in our little box is of a uh, is of a, 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 a kindly old man leaning over the banisters of heaven begging to try to get people saved, then uh, we may need to rethink God's uh, our vision of God. Is our God in that kind of box? Because the God of the Bible tells us he's the one that sent his son to save his people from their sins. We're told that the God of the Bible is the one that, that purposed to save his people from before the foundation of the world. We are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world and in time he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for his people and he did that and in, in their in their lifetimes he sends his Holy Spirit to quicken and make them alive beloved uh, that's the God of the Bible maybe our box is too small he's a it's, it's a box that uh, uh, if our box is so small that our God can't save those that he wants to save without their cooperation and indeed their permission Maybe we need to expand that box. Maybe that doesn't comply or doesn't comport with the Scriptures. Because you see, what the Scriptures teach us is that when Jesus hung on the cross, He cried out, It is finished. It is finished. He didn't say it's almost done. He didn't say, I've done all I can do and now you've got to do the rest. I'm so thankful. And let me tell you something about the doctrine of election. Don't get uptight about that. Don't get worried. Don't, don't, don't be... Don't get nervous about when you hear the word predestination. Over in the ninth chapter of the book of Romans, there's a precious statement over there. People miss Anytime you get uptight or nervous about the doctrine of, of election or predestination or the sovereignty of God, 
it's a sure sign that somebody's not teaching you about it in the right way. You know what it says in the ninth chapter of the book of Romans? As he's telling us about uh, those two children, Jacob and Esau, who are who are are types, if you will, he's using them to explain the doctrine of election. And in verse eleven, he says, "For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of Him that calleth." That, he's saying, "This is exactly I'm fixing to teach you about election right here. I'm fixing to teach you about." predestination. I'm fixing to talk to you about this great doc, the purpose of God according to election. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. People get all twisted up over that, uh, that last part, but I tell you, I get twisted up over the first part. Jacob have I loved. How in the world could God have loved Jacob, that conniver, that thief, that 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 liar, that, that schemer, but yet he did. And I'm so thankful he did because because if he, <laughs> I tell you, I'm not much better than Jacob when it comes right down to it. And he says then, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Uh, I'm telling you, beloved, that's the first question we often get when it comes to the doctrines of grace. God wouldn't be fair. It wouldn't be right for God to choose some and not all. Well, beloved, he says that's the first question you're going you're gonna to ask. Is there unrighteousness with God? And the first answer he gives is God forbid. <laughs> In other words, look. Don't 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 charge God with unrighteousness. God is never unrighteous. He's the God of all righteousness. If you're charging God with unrighteousness, you don't understand what 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 I'm talking about here. That's what he's saying here. He said, "Is there unrighteousness with God in this in this concept of electing grace, in this concept of the doctrine of election that God chose a people in Christ before the foundation of the world and that that he uh purposed to save them? Is there some kind of unrighteousness there? God forbid." Abraham asked the question of God. He said, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? That's one of the great characteristics of God is that he always does right. He is the, he is, in fact, he's called Jehovah our righteousness. He is the righteous God. He's always righteous. God forbid we should charge him with unrighteousness. We must have an, a misunderstanding of the doctrines of grace if we're doing that. And then he goes on to explain it even further. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. One of the reasons we differ, one of the places that we differ from the Calvinists as primitive Baptists, is that we do not believe that God doubly predestinated anybody. There's a, there's a concept called double predestination where it's taught among most Calvinists that, that God predestinated some to heaven and he predestinated others to hell. Beloved, we did not need God's help getting to hell. We were headed that way on our own. Adam put us well on our way to hell. No, we, need God's, we needed God's help to get to heaven. And notice that the doctrine of election has nothing to do with the, with, with the wrath of God. It has nothing to do with the with the condemnation of God. It has to do with the mercy of God. It says, He saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. If you ever hear the doctrine of election preached in regard to the condemnation or the wrath of God, it's not being preached correctly because election has to do with the mercy and compassion of God. The most 
clear statement of the doctrine of election is contained right here in verse 15 of Romans chapter 9 where he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Praise God for the eternal mercy and compassion of God in his electing grace toward his people. And he says, So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. In other words, you can't will your way to heaven. What has everybody told? Most everybody's been brought up to be told, you've got to exercise your will and accept him. You've got to let him in your heart. You've got to accept him. You've got to uh, pray a certain prayer. You've got to do something in the exercise of your will in order to become a child of God. He said, it's not of him that willeth. Many people are taught you've got to do more good works in your life than bad. Oh, I'm, I'm so thankful it's not that way. If it was that way, I'd have no hope. I'm telling you, you think, you, hey, I hope you think I'm a good guy, but if you really knew me, you'd know I'm not a good guy. If you knew me like I know me, or even worse yet, if you knew me like the Lord Jesus Christ knows me, you'd turn that TV off or whatever you're watching, that phone, and you'd never listen to me again because I am not a good guy in my, in my flesh. In my fleshly nature, I am just like Adam, if not a thousand times worse. So if it were put upon me to do enough good works in order to get to heaven, I'd be of all men most miserable. I'd be without hope. I'd be without hope. But see, praise God, he says, he said, it's not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth. Speaking of the works that we do in this life. So what is it of? It's of God that showeth mercy. <laughs> see, that's the teachings that the Bible has about, about salvation. But you know, sometimes the box we put God in based upon what we've been taught excludes the truths of God's word. And that fear of new, the new things. Some people reject these truths. Some people reject primitive Baptist teachings because of the fear of something new. Beloved, don't, don't do that. That's what the Pharisees were doing. But the, some, sometimes people reject them for fear of losing power. In, in this case, Jesus was cutting into the Pharisees' territory. He was, the crowds were thronging him. The lame walked, the blind saw, the deaf heard. <laughs> he shook up their world. It'll be said later of the apostles, that they were turning the world upside down. I'll tell you, beloved, the, some of the biggest revivals in history have been most opposed by the religious leaders of the day. Oh, preserving the status quo. <laughs> that the pres preserving the status quo or tradition should never take priority over pursuing the truth of God's word. Beloved, we need to pursue truth at all costs wherever it leads us, no matter where it goes, because Jesus says the truth will make you free. In this case, these Pharisees were going to be hurt if they embraced the truth. They might lose their position, but beloved, even when Scripture doesn't fit into the theological box of current world teachings or the uh, the, the teachings that you were brought up in, you ought to be willing to change no matter what. <laughs> no matter what. You know, Scripture can destroy the box that we built around our theology. I, I know more than one preacher who knows that the free and sovereign grace of God is taught by Scripture, but they also know they'll lose their positions and their authority if they embrace it publicly. 
Scripture destroys the box that we built around our theology. And too often we ask, what am I, what am I going to gain or lose? What have, what have I got to gain or to lose if I accept different teachings or different, a different way of worship? But I'll tell you, beloved, the question should not be, uh, what am I going to gain or lose? But it should be, does your fear of losing what is familiar and comfortable blind you from seeing the power and majesty of God in His eternal and sovereign salvation and in His kingdom here on earth? Fear can keep us from that, and it shouldn't. Fear of uncertainty, I believe, was also keeping some of these Pharisees from, from, uh, from coming and following Jesus. You know, what will happen to me if I reject the traditional teachings and what I've always believed? The fear of any kind of change is something that will prevent us sometimes from following the Lord. But Jesus said, as I've already mentioned, He said, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. What does He mean by that? Does He mean the truth will get you to heaven? No. Truth will never get you to heaven. Only Jesus gets you to heaven. But the truth will make you enjoy a little bit of heaven here. So, as we close, I know our time is gone. It's just about. How did Jesus respond to this? He called unto them, and this is back in Mark chapter 3 now, in verse 23. He called them unto him, and he said unto them in parables. First of all, he begins to challenge them on the very logic of their own statement. I heard Elder Sonny Pyle say this one time, if you'll reason out a heresy to its logical conclusion, it'll die a natural death. <laughs> now notice what he says to him, how can Satan cast out Satan? That doesn't make good nonsense. <laughs> how could Satan work against Satan? That's crazy. That's what's crazy. I'm not crazy. That's crazy. He goes on to say, if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. That doesn't make sense what you're saying, that I'm casting out devils by the power of Satan. Why would Satan be against himself? Satan is promoting his own kingdom. The kingdom of God is encroaching upon the kingdom of Satan. The prince of the worldly kingdom versus the prince of the heavenly kingdom. That doesn't make any good sense that I'm working for Satan. I'm not. Jesus says, no man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. You remember the first statement Mark made. Mark said, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What Jesus is saying right here is reaffirming that. I'm the Son of God, and I've come into this strong man Satan's house, but I've bound him. He has no power over me. I have all power over him. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You know what Jesus is saying here? He's saying to them, get that box that you have God circumscribed in out of your life. Tear, the, tear those, the, the walls of that box down. God is not in a box. The box you're trying to put Him in based on your traditions and your teachings, will never show you the true nature of God. It will never give you the truth about Him. Only Scripture will do that. If your box, if the box you have God in, does not comply with Scripture, then that you need to throw that box away and get you a bigger box. 
And the only box that, that I have to offer you that could possibly contain Jesus Christ and God Himself is the box that is, that is in compliance with what the Scripture says about Him. God is not in a box. Is your God in a box? Do you have God circumscribed? Do you have Him uh, brought down to your level to where you can manage Him and you, you can put Him, fit Him into the, to the places where your, your, the, the teachings of your childhood uh, uh, cause you to, uh, or allow you to be able to understand Him? Are you willing to throw that box away and go to the Scriptures and seek only the truth about God wherever it leaves you? I talked to Brother Mike Ivey one time, and he said years ago he made it purpose in his mind that he would seek the truth no matter where it took him. You know where it took him? It took him right to the old Baptist church <laughs> that he'd grown up with, that he'd grown up in. Because, beloved... I hope. Let me let me say this. Sometimes, as old Baptists, we we get we're guilty of putting God in a box. You know, there's no way God could be working over here or over there. It's only in the way we do it every Sunday and every day, our traditions. But beloved, I hope at Zion Church, we've done away with all our traditions, and that we've done away with anything that doesn't comply with Scripture. Is our God in a box? Have we put God in a place where we can manage Him? Or have we remembered, as C.S. Lewis reminded us, that God, or Aslan in his book, is not a tame lion. Our God is not a tame God. He doesn't violate His Word. He doesn't go against Scripture. And if you'll seek the truth in the Word of God about salvation, about the proper way of worship, about anything else, you say, I'm struggling in my marriage. Seek the truth. God is in here. God will show you. Don't, you know, the world will tell you, well, if you're having marital problems, just get divorced and start over. See what the Word of God says. God says, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Jesus didn't get to a point on Calvary where He said, hey, I've had enough. I'm done with this. It's time to, to pack up and move away and start over. Whatever the situation is, Seek the truth of Scripture. Your God is not in a box. Praise God. Our God is so big that He works in every situation and He is big enough to take care of us. I thank you for your kind attention this morning. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.